Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the progress being made on the effort to reform and defund the police in America, as well as the reignited campaign to make society safe for women in the wake of the Sarah Everard murder in the UK. If you need a refresher, or know someone who does, I highly recommend that you check out our episode from last year. It's number 1360, Redefine unburden and defund the police to get a deep dive perspective on the defund the police movement. It's been less than a year since the concept entered mainstream consciousness. There's still plenty of misconceptions about it. So make sure that you and everyone else you know understands what people are actually talking about, not what some scaremongers would have you believe. And now on to the show. Clips today are from In the Loop, the PBS NewsHour, MTV Impact, The Rational National, Ring of Fire Radio, The Telegraph, Tisky Sour, Channel 4 News, CNN UK, The Laura Flanders Show, and Into America. Defund the police became a super controversial slogan last year when it entered the mainstream, even after it was rejected by both Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and a long list of other political leaders. But with all the hand-wringing around the slogan itself, it's important to remember what defunding the police really means. In most cases, it means taking some things, like dealing with nonviolent situations, out of the hands of armed police and into the hands of social workers. Newsy's Jamal Andrus took an in-depth look at one city that already defunded police and what's happened since then. Over the summer, chants to defund the police rang out across the country, but hardly anyone cut their police budget by as much as Austin, Texas. While cities like Baltimore and Denver cut their budgets by 3% or 10%, Austin cut APD's budget by a third. 150 million. And they've already started spending that money on other programs, buying two hotels with plans to convert them into permanent supportive housing for the homeless. The Black Lives Matter movement's really ascending in our cities. It created an opportunity for us to move the dollars that so often are used to police homelessness, to throw people in jail for a night and then to send them back onto the streets, to take those same dollars and use them to actually operate the hotels. To operate these hotels, it'll take about $6.5 million annually. But the backlash to any reallocation of police funds in this very red state has been swift and widespread. Crime is up because police funding is down. That's the wrong direction. We will not stand idly by and watch as violent criminals take over the streets of our communities. The city of Austin is a disaster if you haven't been there. Now one of the most dangerous cities in America, and definitely in Texas. The Texas governor has threatened to remove Austin police from the city's control, freeze property tax revenues, and bring in federal law enforcement, all in the interest of public safety. And while Austin isn't one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S., or even in Texas, it has seen a rise in homicides from 36 in 2019, to 48 in 2020. Other large cities in the state experienced similar rises in homicides, including both Houston and Fort Worth, two cities that increased their police budgets this year. Austin City Councilman Greg Kassar, who spearheaded the police defunding effort, says housing for the homeless is exactly the kind of action that will make the city safer. Lying about Austin doesn't make anyone safer, but setting up homeless shelters does make people safer. These are real issues that the governor, lieutenant governor, don't want to talk about, that policing doesn't solve entirely on its own, and that we are actually 
bringing dollars forward to help solve the issue. Austin's housing program is similar to one in Los Angeles that housed about 3,500 chronically homeless people. Like Los Angeles, Austin plans to offer wraparound services, meaning not only housing, but a case manager for residents and other social services. Professor Sarah Hunter evaluated the Los Angeles housing program and saw positive impacts. Study after study shows that permanent supportive housing, uh, increasing house, increases housing stability. It also pays for itself. According to Hunter, for every dollar the Los Angeles Health Department spent on this housing program, the county saved $1.20, dramatically reducing expensive trips to the emergency room and long-term hospital stays. What it suggests is we're already, um, as a society, paying a, a lot of money to provide services to people experiencing homelessness. The provision of permanent supportive housing may actually uh, be a more uh, effective use of those funds. Austin's reforms have extended beyond the police budget, with the city adding a mental health option for 911 calls and proposing an independent office of police oversight. I believe lots of other cities can follow Austin's example because unfortunately, uh, many cities have over relied on policing and jailing as our primary response to social issues. That's something that doesn't just exist here in Austin, it exists all over the country. So, Lisa, as you know very well, the House also last night passed a piece of legislation on policing reform, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Uh, this in response to the death of George Floyd at the hands of police uh, last year in Minneapolis is something Democrats have been pushing for ever since. Tell us what's in that legislation. This is another absolutely critical topic that this country has been talking about, having conversations about, but that lawmakers at the federal level have not acted on. This is the House passing a bill it passed again last year, hoping it has a better chance this time. Let's remind people what's in this George Floyd Act. Uh, part of this bill, a big part of it would be um, providing a national registry of police misconduct so that police um, who are accused or who are found guilty of misconduct, use of force, that would be known throughout the country and the public would be able to see some of that information. It would end police immunity also from civil lawsuits. Right now, civilians cannot sue police officers if they feel their constitutional rights are violated, not as individuals. There would be a federal ban on chokeholds and no-knock warrants. And then this bill would also then try to incentivize local and state police forces to similarly ban those chokeholds and the no-knock warrants by tying federal funding to that idea. Now, that is an idea, Judy, as you heard, I think, from Senator McConnell earlier in the show, that Republicans rail against. They think that is overreach and the federal government trying to tell state and local powers what to do. Of course, it's a classic example of the Congress using the power of the purse as it has for many years. There are 18,000 police agencies right now. And of course, many of there are also thousands of federal police officers. And this is the House trying to do something on this absolutely critical 
Uh, issue. Who opposed uh, to defunding the police should be opposing this bill. It removes qualified immunity, which will result in an ineffectual police force and leave our communities vulnerable to crime. If this legislation had been the law of the land several years ago, Eric Gardner and George Floyd would be allowed today because the bill bans chokeholds. If the bill had been lost la- law last year, Breonna Taylor would have not been shot to death in her sleep because no-knock warrants for drug offenses would have been illegal. And that, of course, shows you how passionate the debate was yesterday. And so, Lisa, what what is expected uh, next uh, when it goes to the Senate? Well, it looks like this bill, as it was passed in the House, probably won't pass intact, but there are negotiations underway. There is some very significant bipartisan interest in this issue. Uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, Republican, uh, was the author of a different bill last year, uh, and he is in negotiations. He says he's interested in talking to Democrats in the House. They say they are trying to come up with something that everyone can agree on. I will tell you, I also had one of my longest conversations ever with Lisa Murkowski of Alaska about this topic. There are are certainly a dozen Republicans in the Senate who want to pass something. Now, can they agree? Hard to say, but this is an issue that may have a chance in the Senate. The House passed the sweeping George Floyd Justice and Policing Act this week. But as long as partisan politics remains the status quo, lawmakers will continue to fail black Americans. I'm Doma T. Pungo, and this is MTV News. Need to know. Yesterday, the House of Representatives took up the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, a bill that aims to protect Americans from police misconduct, chokeholds and no knock raids. As expected, the measure passed in the Democrat-controlled chamber, but not without full Republican opposition. This is the second time Congress has taken up police reform in the nine months since the killing of 46-year-old George Floyd in Minnesota. The resulting racial reckoning of 2020 brought on some tangible changes thanks to public outcry exacerbated by the pandemic. Everything from statues of slave owners being torn down to corporate sensitivity trainings, sports teams changing racist mascots. We even renamed Aunt Jemima. The one thing that did not happen was widespread accountability for police officers who killed black folks for no reason. We changed the name of a goddamn sir before we legislated against white supremacy. And when the House took up a police reform bill in 2020, the measure stalled in the then Republican controlled Senate, where Mitch McConnell failed to even bring it to the floor. Fast forward to this Wednesday, eight months later, when the House voted on a revamped version of that bill. It's called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. MSNBC's Kyle Griffin reports the bill overhauls qualified immunity for police officers, bans chokeholds at the federal level, prohibits no-knock warrants in federal drug cases, outlaws racial profiling, and establishes a national registry of police misconduct to be managed by the Department of Justice. Now, one of the most important parts of this bill is addressing qualified immunity. Qualified immunity basically means that police aren't capable of being prosecuted unless they're A, intentionally violating you, or B, unreasonably incompetent. Obviously, there's lots of room for interpretation, meaning qualified immunity is one of the loopholes that allows officers to go free. Simply put, as Robert McNamara, senior attorney for the Institute of Justice notes, qualified immunity gives government officials a rubber stamp to violate your rights. This is how Breonna Taylor's murderers get away with blatant atrocities. It takes an extraordinary amount of legal argument and evidence to hold police officers accountable, even when they are entirely in the wrong. 
How does it feel to know the police could get away with barging into your home while you're asleep and shoot you even when you haven't done anything? And just a reminder, police aren't supposed to kill guilty people either. Unsurprisingly, the Republican Party of Law and Order has historically been against ending qualified immunity for police. They've argued that the policing business is dangerous, complex, and should account for a wide range of leniency when it comes to officers making decisions about how to do their jobs. They've called this push to end qualified immunity a poison pill. They've united to vote against the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. In fact, the one Republican who voted for the measure later took back his vote, saying he voted for it in error after realizing he accidentally pressed the wrong button. You really can't make this stuff up. This week, GOP representatives have continued to rail not only against this bill, but other social issues like the inclusive renaming of Mr. Potato Head to just Potato Head. By focusing on this, GOP leaders decenter solutions to advance equity and human rights. As Bernice King, CEO of the MLK Center, tweets, it's really sad that there are people who are outraged about Mr. Potato Head, but not about Mr. George Floyd. How telling that people who don't support a justice and policing act think their way of life is being threatened because of actions concerning toys and children's books. The bill will head to the Senate next, where it's destined for another stall by Republicans. Democrats have a slim majority. They need 60 votes to withstand GOP obstruction, which means 10 Republicans will have to join them in support. Not likely. Other progressive efforts are in for similar blocks by Republicans, with the House-approved bill that would expand voting rights headed toward a procedural stalemate in the Senate. This is why young people are increasingly impatient and more likely to support defunding over reforming. The slower we inch along the road to equity, the more black bodies suffer in the wake. When it comes to matters of life and death, impatience is a virtue, too. But this cycle is going to continue unless Democratic leaders can become as legislatively aggressive as their GOP counterparts. Now, America is considered a world leader, but it will be embarrassing if at the end of a national racial reckoning, all we have to show for ourselves is a few toppled monuments and a renamed bottle of syrup. reach the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fight to pass the George Floyd Act, Breathe Act, and take local action. There are a few things you need to know up front about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It is not enough. It is not perfect. It will not come close to fixing everything. And it faces a steep uphill battle to getting passed by the Senate. That said, the bill is still historic and sweeping legislation in a country that has done next to nothing legislatively to stop police brutality. The bill includes the creation of a national database of police misconduct, bans federal law enforcement from using chokeholds and from using no-knock warrants in drug cases, criminalizes officer sexual misconduct against detainees, and more. The key clarification here is that if passed, the bill would mostly impact federal law enforcement. We're talking about ICE, ATF, and DEA officers, U.S. park rangers and police officers, and many, many more law enforcement officers working under the federal government. But as we know, police abuse and brutality happen frequently in these federal ranks, and so the bill's potential impact should not be understated. Two provisions in the bill that would definitely affect local and state police forces are the end of qualified immunity, which currently protects officers from individual liability, and limiting transfer of military equipment to local police departments. 
It's important to remember that this bill is also still a work in progress and proposed amendments are still being made. You can help shape this bill by calling and writing to your members of Congress. However, without an end to the racist Senate filibuster, any legislation like this is already stalled. Sure, you can force a vote and put people on the record, but Democrats have the power to end the filibuster, and it is their duty to do so. Making sure that happens is an essential first step to any legislative fight right now. So should we keep fighting to improve and pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? Yes. Should we keep fighting for the BREATHE Act from the Movement for Black Lives, which goes farther to address root causes of police brutality and its disproportionate impact on Black and Indigenous communities? Yes, and yes again. But remember that in this gridlocked political landscape, the local and state-level fight for change is powerful and essential. You can get involved by joining a local action group or national organization local chapter fighting police brutality where you live. We've linked to a list of organizations by state in the show notes. If you want a starting point to understand the approach to fighting police abuse and brutality locally, the ACLU Fighting Police Abuse Community Action Manual is a great resource. So from the halls of Congress to your local city hall, tap into that local people power and make the change we need. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if upending our culture of police brutality is important to you, be sure to tell everyone you know about the fight to pass the George Floyd Police Act, Breathe Act, and taking local action so that others in your network can spread the word too. Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong, putting all where it belongs? As we stand up and be strong Cause it's time to make a difference In this fickle world of change 172 Republican lawmakers voted against renewing the Violence Against Women Act And their reasoning is atrocious So before I get to their reasoning This was an act that was passed originally back in the 90s It was within Joe Biden's crime bill The crime bill itself it was garbage, but this was the one piece of it that got people like Bernie Sanders on board to vote for it, and it has been renewed uh, every five years since. So this has to be renewed every five years. Normally, there isn't much of an issue, but it wasn't passed in 2019 because of the GOP-controlled Senate, so now it's up for a vote again, passed the House, but 172 members of the GOP voting against it. Now... Before I get to their reasoning, let me give you a little more information here on the uh, act itself. So from the Hill, the legislation, which was introduced, reintroduced by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, and Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, would provide grants to state and local governments for programs addressing domestic abuse, sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. It would further close the so-called boyfriend loophole to prevent dating partners convicted of domestic violence or abuse from buying or owning guns. Current law only applies the gun purchase restriction to spouses or formerly married partners convicted of abuse or under a restraining order. Now, this seems like a no-brainer. Even if you are a Republican, knowing that it's going to pass a democratically controlled House, you might as well be on the record supporting a piece of legislation that actually protects women. At least pretend to be a good person sometimes. But no. They voted against it, and you may already be able to guess, at least partly, uh, as to why. 
GOP critics of the measure argue that the bill restricts gun rights by preventing people convicted of stalking or abusing dating partners from buying a gun. They also object to language that provides additional protections for transgender individuals. So, Republican lawmakers voted against this because it offers too much protection to women. They want people who have been convicted of stalking or abusing dating partners to buy a gun. They want these people to be able to own guns. And then, of course, transgender protections, anything would even give one uh, iota of, of help to the trans community. GOP lawmakers against it instantly for no reason at all. I mean, do we really have to? Who do you think is going to be on the right side of history here? You look back at civil rights, MLK, who was against him back then. And now these days, Republicans try to claim him. Absolutely uh, absurd. But whether it's, you know, civil rights or or gay rights, who do you think is going to be on the right side of history? Looking back on this in 10, 20 years, these Republicans want to go on the record as a piece of shit. They want people to know in the future that they were pieces of shit because there is no reason at all to vote against this. It was going to pass regardless. They could have at least pretended. Let history pretend that you were a good person once, but no. Bookshop.org is the online bookstore we've all been waiting for. They have a mission to financially support local independent bookstores, but with all the convenience of online shopping. You order your books online, but some of the funds go to support brick and mortar stores to help keep them thriving. And you can choose to support a specific local bookstore or your order will simply contribute to an earnings pool that will be evenly distributed among independent bookstores, even those that don't use Bookshop. So there's really no excuse. If you're buying books online, do it through bookshop.org. By purchasing books through our Best of Left Bookshop, we'll get a 10% commission on every sale, and independent bookstores will get a matching 10%. So by design, Bookshop gives away over 75% of its profit margin to stores, publications, authors, and others who make up the thriving, inspirational culture around books. Today, we're promoting authors who are two of the most trusted sources on the topic of police and prison abolition. Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing, and Miriam Kaba, possibly better known as At Prison Culture on Twitter, author of, most recently, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. Both of these books get our seal of approval, hands down. The End of Policing was on everyone's must-read list last year as people were attempting to come to terms with this brand new topic, and it was named a Los Angeles Times bestseller, and Kaba's new book, published just last month, has already hit the New York Times bestseller list, which is hopefully a sign of the growing appetite for such thinking. So check out both of these books and everything else we're currently recommending at our Best of the Left bookshop. Simply visit bestoftheleft.com slash bookshop or follow the link in the show notes. talk about um, in your piece George H.W. Bush's campaign and his use of the Willie Horton story. Can you expand upon that? Because as as violence against women becomes more um, racialized in the discourse uh, and also more prominent the issue, you see politicians like uh, Bush one using 
a lot of this terminology, which becomes in, uh, increasingly racialized in order to buttress his campaign. So Willie Horton um, was someone who was uh, serving time for a previous offense and, um, if I recall correctly, was granted a furlough. And um, during that time, um, he committed a number of offenses, including um, the murder of two people and uh, the rape of a white woman. And George H.W. Bush um, and his campaign cooked that into an ad and essentially said, you know, this is the future Democrats want, right? Little has changed in the intervening decades. This is the kind of thing that they do. Trump made a very similar ad um, a few years ago um, in the run-up to the, I believe, the most recent election. And now in one one sense, that's kind of par for the course because that is um, key Republican strategy. But um, a point that uh, Donna Murch, who is a historian that she made, is that the response of Democrats is actually um, how we get the 94 crime bill. So a number of Democratic insiders, including uh, now President Biden, including eventual President Clinton and including um, other elites like Chuck Schumer, decided that they needed to run to the right on criminal justice reform to avoid the kind of um, devastating electoral results that Michael Dukakis got running against the Willie Horton ad um, that President Bush had put together. And so um, that went as far as President Bush flying or sorry, President Clinton during the election um, for his first term, flying back to personally oversee um, an execution in order to craft this tough on crime message that the 94 crime bill was part and parcel of um, establishing for Democrats. So, yes, we're, we're in the Clinton era now, and this is obviously when the crime bill and the Violence Against Women Act is birthed. And so it wasn't just the war on drugs element of the crime bill that ballooned mass incarceration. That's what is so key to your piece and what you lay out so well. So we're seeing the policing element of the rhetoric against violence against women expanding as those groups uh, were getting government funding. It becomes more meshed together. And now in the Violence Against Women Act, there are funds, stop grants, money that is given to increase the arrest and prosecution of perpetrators of domestic violence, basically. So can you uh, talk about what that did to um, advance a lot of the racial elements and the mass incarceration elements that are so under-discussed in in this part of the crime bill. Yeah, so the, you know, because of this atmosphere that Femi just described, um, the Violence Against Women Act was included in the crime bill um, in large part so that more progressive members of um, the Democratic Party would sign on to the crime bill. Um, But because of all of those things that Femi was just describing in both parties, um, it was really crucial that these were still used lots of tough on crime language and included lots of tough on crime legislation. Um, And so, you know, if you look at the debates that were occurring over the Violence Against Women Act, there was, you know, I mean, 
really like remarkable language that was like, you know, we need less money for social workers and more money for jail cells. And, you know, women are going to die if you don't vote for this bill. And, you know, we don't get more money in the hands of police and open up, you know, increased death penalties. It was like really remarkable language that was being used. Um, and that language resulted in a lot of what are called mandatory arrest laws, um, which essentially means that when a police officer is called um, for a domestic violence incident or a domestic disturbance, um, then the cop has to make an arrest when they get to the residence. Um, so, you know, I mean... Obviously, there are a variety of like incredibly complicated situations that can occur when a cop is called. Um, and if you were leaving one individual police officer to make a decision about who is going to get arrested, um, you know, even if both parties end up saying, you know, we, we don't want to make any arrests like we do, don't want to involve the police, um, a police officer has to make an arrest. Um, and one of the um, one of the things that we saw from that is a dramatic increase of the arrest of women and the dramatic increase in the arrest of um, in the incarceration of women. Um, we saw men's and women's incarceration increase significantly as a result of mandatory arrest laws. Um, but like in California, um, the arrest of women increased by 400 percent. Um, so that was really an unreal statistic that you wrote. And then, and then I'm sorry, just to cut you off really quickly. No, women recently in recent decades have been incarcerated. Uh, their incarceration rates were increasing twice as fast as men, which is just something I was completely unaware of. Um, continue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think incarceration is still, um, it is still overwhelmingly men who are incarcerated. Um, but yeah, women and um, black women in particular are one of the fastest groups of incarcerated people in the United States. Um, and these stop grants, um, which the Violence Against Women Act was was full of, um, I mean, millions and millions of dollars. I think in 1995, uh, there were $26 million for stop grants. Um, and by 2010, there were $189 million for stop grants. And stop grants are basically um, it, almost exclusively money to increase either mandatory arrest or pro-arrest policies. Um, so that is all money that is going to police departments and law enforcement to get people arrested and prosecuted um, and, you know, eventually incarcerated. Yeah, the the mandatory arrest element, I think uh, you, you almost take it for granted when you see, say, a domestic violence call in a TV show or something like that, that that's what happens. But it was not always that way. And as you guys write, it increases the adversarial relationship between the two parties involved, really, and involves the police in a way that, you know, the black community is more rightly so mistrustful of police, etc. So it's all these complicated dynamics. But it also occurs to me too, just the when you talk about how this conversation became increasing, increasingly racialized um, in the discourse, how when you have lawmakers pounding the drum saying, you know, we have to protect women, we have to protect women, what that really meant was we have to protect white women. And a lot of this is about controlling white women. Uh, lawmakers, white lawmakers terrified about white women versus black men, etc. Was that a lot of the dynamic there based on the the, the Horton story that was discussed um, as well? 
Yeah. And I mean, there was also um, the Minneapolis experiment, which a lot of this um, legislation was actually based off of, um, was a an experiment in Minneapolis that initially a relatively small study um, that basically showed that it kept women safer to make an arrest when a police officer came to um, after a call. Um, and Basically, massive publicity followed that study. You know, it was covered in the New York Times. It was covered in a bunch of different publications um, and mandatory arrest policies increased dramatically after that study. Um, And what was found out not that long after was that study was done in a predominantly white area. Um, And it actually showed that mandatory arrest may help some middle and upper class white women. Um, but the harms that it has for poor black people and for poor black women are remarkable because it doesn't take into account the harms of incarceration on poor communities in the United States. Um, and actually the like later iterations of the study and with like an expanded uh, study pool found that having a partner in rest arrested increased black women's mortality by 98%. Um, and that wasn't, wow. and that's, yeah, it's a crazy, crazy number. Um, and that is not necessarily as a result of homicide. That's a result of things like heart disease and things like, you know, extraordinary levels of stress and diseases of poverty. Um, and so I think, that's something that I think we kept coming back to is that this legislation just doesn't take into account how much poverty kills people. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would just add to that, that, you know, I think one of the things to question in the background of how we think about this politics is what the actual considerations were in terms of what's being protected and who's being protected. Because when the, um, a group of researchers, including one of the authors of the original study, did um, further study and found out that these effects actually backfire for significant amounts of people and that mandatory arrest wasn't helping. There wasn't any um, push from police departments to roll back these flawed policies. And um, a point that one of the Democratic supporters of the bill made at the time in 1994 is that a quarter of the money um, of um, assigned to the crime bill was for the Violence Against Women Act. And that money went disproportionately to fund law enforcement and prosecutors to fund trainings for them, essentially. But, you know, if you're following the accounting, if you're following the money, it was flowing from the coffers of the United States Congress into these institutions that have a vested interest in portraying crime in a particular way. Yeah, uh, just the in- increased militarization of police and the, the, just that they have unlimited resources to basically uh, behave in the way that we've uh, seen a glaring spotlight on um, uh this is especially in recent years. So let, let's bring it back to uh, and, and, and end here, Joe Biden and his presidency, because he cites the violence. He just cited it in an interview with George uh, Stephanopoulos on ABC as, you know, the crown jewel of his time in the Senate. He had all the the, the deregulation of the credit card industry. The, the, anyway, the crime bill itself. But um, the Violence Against Women Act, he talks about with with. Uh, a lot of 
I guess, um, pride. And he promised that in his first hundred days that they were going to reauthorize it. It, it lapsed in 2019, but, it, uh, and it was just reauthorized in the House, but the Senate has to reauthorize it as well. It contains gun provisions, so Republicans are gonna balk at that. But obviously, and I, given this information that you provided, I, I, really don't want it to be reauthorized. So what is the path forward um, outside of the Violence Against Women Act? And what does this mean for Joe Biden and his kind of evolution on this front, if there is any evolution? I mean, in, in many ways, it is the the question, right? And for um, reasons that have to do both with you know, the way that we think about violence and the actual kind of institutional problems of trying to address violence at its root. Um, it's kind of the tough case for the um, increasingly mainstream conversation around prison abolitionism and police abolitionism and finding different, um, more restoratively rooted ways and transformatively rooted ways to address crime and violence. Um and I would emphasize violence rather than crime because crime is politically constructed. Blah, blah. But there are people doing um, a lot of work on more restorative approaches to um, addressing harm within communities. Um, there's a peacemaking program that's being run by the Navajo Nation. Um, Mariam Kaba's new book is best-selling and people are beginning to think in more creative ways about other ways to address harm in communities other than policing nightsticks, incarceration, and these more violent state-run methods. I think at a minimum, we have to reverse the kind of trajectory that got started in the 90s when they started defunding things that support people and routing that funding into police and adjacent institutions. I will be at that bandstand, whatever, you can find me. I don't care, you know, there are more important things at stake here, I think. The systems that were put in place to protect her failed, right? And the people that are in charge of those systems are now telling us that we can't protest this tragedy. Frankly, that makes no sense to me. I live in Clapham. Posters started to go up around this time last week. And my daughter, you know, was trying to ask me you know, why the posters, there were posters for a missing woman as opposed to, say, a missing cat. How do you explain that? I think seeing firsthand this week, you know, the part where I usually take my daughter for walks or where I go running alone often, you know, um, police in like forensic outfits combing your local park is, it's, it really, really brings home to you the, the, the kind of horror of, of this and, and why we need to sort of be protesting, we need to be making, you know, reclaiming the streets, I guess. Yesterday evening, officers arrested a serving Metropolitan Police officer at an address in Kent in connection with the disappearance of Sarah Everard. 
I know Scotland Yard have gone to great lengths to say that what happened to Sarah or what we think happened to Sarah is very rare. But for me, that really ignores the fact that these things happen on a sliding scale. That's why so many women feel so deeply moved, because we've all had something on that same spectrum happen to us. We've been followed home, we've been harassed, we've been groped, we've been catcalled, we've been assaulted. And that is why we're so deeply shocked, because I think for any one of us, we feel like had one element in that situation just been slightly different, if somebody hadn't come along and interrupted or whatever it might be, it could have been much more serious. When it started to be reported that she'd gone missing, I was really shocked that in quite a few quarters of the internet, there were people saying, well, what was she doing walking home alone? You know, and that's the thing I think that has really ignited people's fury is the thing that, you know, in the first reaction of the police was to say women, you know, to say to people in the local area, be careful, don't go out by yourself late at night. And a friend of mine said to me, oh, well, that's just common sense though, isn't it, Bryony? You know, someone's missing. And I was like, no, this doesn't, this isn't common. This just makes no sense to me at all that I, you know, that women should be sort of to blame for these things happening. And I certainly don't want my daughter to grow up in a world where she thinks that women are to blame if they go missing because they were out at night by themselves. When a case like this that's very public, um, you know, comes to the front of our minds, and in this case, it was because up until very recently, there was a very public, um, you know, appeal for, for information. And so I think that's why it's really, um, it's really emerged in the media. And I think when that comes up, it, it does force us to examine our own lives and our own experiences um and that's where you get people telling their stories and of course the sad truth of this is that we all have a story in some shape or form i i think i would go as far as to say every woman that i know um has some sort of story to tell and some sort of experience and that's the real tragedy of it um so i think the the online response is equal parts sort of heartbreaking and difficult but also I do feel a sense of empowerment when I read that. I think, you know, people need to hear these stories. Without these stories, we don't get anywhere. We don't make progress. Um, you know, any any progress that's made always has to have a human face. And I think that is what's happening. There are people on social media today saying that the protest has been politicised and it should therefore be cancelled. But in my view, it needs to be politicised. What are we doing if it's not being politicised? Unless politicians get involved and we have a specific public sexual harassment offence put in place, unless more money is given to domestic abuse refuges, unless the Crown Prosecution Service is getting more rape convictions, what is it all for? It absolutely needs to be politicised. Living next to that common, right, I would tell you last summer, right, when we were in a lockdown, that, that common's a huge, wide open space, right? And... It was thousands and thousands of people would congregate on it during the lockdowns. It was like living next to Glastonbury Festival at some points. And the police didn't move anyone on, right? So, you know, the argument that it's for our safety when we know that people are able to socially distance, the organisers themselves in all of their marketing um, material for the event were like, you must wear masks and be socially distanced. You know, all the care has been taken. Um, so I will be there.
I think it's also extraordinary that we're having a conversation about COVID safety when it comes to this vigil, this protest. And of course, that's incredibly important. And I will absolutely be observing social distancing myself when I'm there. But really, this conversation is about women's safety. It's not about COVID safety. And the fact that that conversation has been allowed to dominate the other, I think, shows exactly how seriously we take it. And, you know, some of the lockdown policies have really affected women's safety. I've heard from countless women in my role as women's editor who haven't feel, felt safe to walk the streets on their own when lockdown was at its harshest, or have felt that they can't go out and exercise after dark or by themselves. And there have been increased reports of harassment under those circumstances, and that's incredibly worrying. So I think one conversation shouldn't be allowed to dominate. One I want to bring up is, is from NHS worker Kate Jarman. So she wrote, like this tweet, if as a woman you've walked home with your keys in your hand in case you need to use them in self-defense, if you faked being on the phone as you walk past the man coming towards you, if you've changed your route, if you started to run in fear, and like this tweet, if that's been because of the behavior of men, whether it's men's behavior that needs to change, not women's. We also have a tweet here from our own, Navarro's own Ash Sarkar, who tweeted, I can't remember the first time I was targeted on the street, mostly because it started so young. And I can't think of a time when it wasn't a part of just being in public as a woman. It happened when I was in school uniform. It still happens in broad daylight as well as at night. And finally, Helen Barnard, who is director of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, pointed out you know, the very important point. Uh, in response to the people who say, well, you should get a camp home, don't walk home home at night. She says there is actually no safe way to get home. So she, she tweets, get a taxi. So many nights finishing work late and getting in a taxi, calling home so the driver could hear me tell someone where I was, tracking the route to judge if I was being taken the right way, wondering if I could kick open the door if needed. It's exhausting. Now, I mean, as I say, there are thousands and thousands of these tweets. Dahlia, I want your your thoughts on how meaningful this moment could be. Obviously, it has lots of resonances, um, I suppose, with, with I Can't Breathe, um, with the response to the death of George Floyd, also with the Me Too movement, where one um, you know revelation about a particularly powerful man prompted many, many women to talk about their experiences of uh, harassment. And we can talk about how effective or, or ineffective that movement was. But w what do you make of this this outpouring? I mean, I think that it's it's important to kind of make it when when a voice feels collective, it can it can really help. I think that what struck me so much about these tweets and, you know, all of these women talking about, like I said earlier, the strategies that they take in order to try and feel in control of what's going to happen to them is that it, it tells me that, you know, women turn to themselves to keep themselves safe. They don't turn and their communities and their friends who they, you know, call before they get into a cab or they call, you know, on before they start their journey home, that that we actually don't rely on on the the police to keep them safe. And, you know, it's something that we hear a lot, but it's not something that actually is is what happens on the ground and um, whether it's you know carrying hairspray around keys between their knuckles checking with friends you know I could probably put a mortgage down on a house with the amount of money I get spend on Ubers because I'm scared to walk alone um at night so 
you know, the police don't actually make women feel safer. They're not who we turn to to try and feel safe. And any woman who queer person who's actually been through the system when they've experienced a harm, you know, whether it's harassment, whether it's uh, stalking, other gender based violences, you know, when women have gone to institutions that they are told are there to protect them and been like, I know that this man is going to hurt me. And there is, you know, can tell any woman that's done that can tell you that police sure as hell aren't useful when when that's the case. So but I think also, you know, with with a lot of these messages, with a lot of these tweets, I think it's also really careful, um, really important to tread quite a difficult line here, which is, you know, it's very important to, to talk about how, you know, we do all these strategies to keep us safe. And even when we do them, um, we still can be subject to harassment and violence. But I think it's really important to not center this conversation around questions of innocence, you know, about because it implies that there are some women, women who can't take those strategies, whether they are sex workers or they work in the nighttime economy, or they're women who just love to stay out late and wear what the hell they want to wear, enjoy their night, somehow, you know, didn't take the right precautionary measures um, that they should have taken to prevent harm. And I think, especially when it comes to harm um, experienced by the police, and obviously, you know, we don't know the details of this particular case, but there is a long tradition of women talking about experiencing sexual violence or experiencing harm at the hands of a police officer and not being able to actually do anything about it. Um, it's especially important to avoid that question of innocence because it suggests that if you're not innocent, then violence or harm that you're subjected to by the police, whether it's on the street or in a cell, um, is somehow deserved or not concerning or, or part of the course. So I think that these kind of tweets have done a lot of work to, I think, bring realization to the kind of context that women are living in. But I think it's really important, again, to center on the systemic causes of this and the conditions that make women vulnerable, rather than um, kind of what behaviors women should take on in order to try and assuage their vulnerability, even though inevitably, because you want to feel some control over your life, um, you do do them. I do them all the time. Um, so yeah, I think that's a kind of convoluted response, but I'm still kind of muddling my way through trying to think about quite a difficult situation. I suppose the problem is when you say we should be no more frightened or women should be no more frightened than usual, for many women, Usual is pretty terrible. Sophia Marode, can you tell me a little bit about what happened to you? So when I was 16 years old, I was walking in broad daylight um, from my sixth form at the time and I was followed home. I realised that I was being followed and went into a shop. Um, I waited there for about 20 minutes because I didn't want him to see where I lived just in case. I naively actually asked him, are you following me? Because I was in disbelief as to what was actually happening. And he denied following me and I realised I just needed to get out of the situation. But I had, as many people do, the reaction of freezing. I didn't report it on that day because I knew that it would not have met the threshold. So I noted down his details while I still remembered them. Then two months later, or it was about a month and a half perhaps, after I'd changed address for unrelated reasons, I saw him outside my new address and this is when I realised I do need to call the police now. Hopefully I will have met the threshold Instead, when I did report it, I was talked out of taking it any further by the police officer. You're 16 at that stage. Describe that level of fear and what that does to you subsequently. The sad thing is I was feeling fear, but it was also familiarity. 
I'd been sexually harassed beforehand. I'd been street harassed beforehand. It was more a matter of how do I prevent this from becoming serious? Jess Phillips, she felt fear, but she felt familiarity. And that sense of familiarity is what we have heard from Mm -hmm. women all over the country over the last 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, there's been a a massive outpouring of expressions uh, of the risk assessment that women have to do every single day when they're doing anything. And we do it without even realising that it's happening. Um, And I I think, you know, it is important uh, that that the point that has been made about how we're no more in danger today than we were yesterday in light of um, this case, um, which has been harrowing and has brought about uh, feelings of real fear and upset. We are no more at danger as individuals, but we were already at risk. Clearly, what many women are saying is that this is an issue about men. The focus is endlessly on women. How do women modify their behaviour? But many women saying this is an issue for men. And Daniel Guinness, you're the director of Beyond Equality. You work with boys and young men. What are you telling them? What are you hearing from them about this issue? There's a lot of panic in a moment like this uh, that we have at the moment, but there's a lot of disbelief and denial at many, many other times in the year. And we do say to young men and boys, you have a huge role to play in ending this, in actually creating a society that is safe and can be safe for everyone. Um, And the reason why men have such a big role to play is the other side of the stats. When you look at who's perpetrating the violence, the vast majority of violent crime is perpetrated by men, the vast majority. And um, we as men have such an important part in denormalizing, destabilizing, challenging, disrupting any of those norms that say it's okay to resort to violence, it's okay to force yourself on somebody. Jess Phillips? Yeah, I just think that it's a really important thing to say that, uh, you know, I I, I don't want to pitch men versus women uh, and say they're getting killed more than them. One thing I would say where men definitely win is the people who are perpetrating the violence against both men and women. What I don't want this time in light of this case, in light of the outpouring of women talking about how they feel and what they want um, to go forward, what I don't want is it to become we're men versus women. Um, This is about how we're asking men to join us because it is men's violence and we've done everything we can. We've walked a different way. We've locked ourselves away. We've asked our mates to follow us on a phone. We've done it. We've done it. We've done it all and it didn't keep us safe. So we're going to hand over to to men and say, come along, what are we going to do to stop this? And we're going to, I'm going to certainly be putting that on the government's door as well, because this is a system issue, not just a men versus women issue. Sophia, where do you think the change lies? Where, how do we change this now? I would say that it definitely has to be a shared effort because at the heart of it, these are social issues. They can escalate to crimes, but they are at the very beginning social issues and it needs to be addressed at a behavioural level, as well as at a process level, as well as in the terms of how authorities handle it. And Jess Phillips, there is a huge question, isn't there, about how the criminal justice system is able or willing to deal with these crimes against women. And at the moment, on pretty much every measure, it's failing, isn't it? 
it's totally failing and it fails more and more year on year and whether that's a resources issue or a risk issue and they're saying that we don't deal with these things because of this resource or there's a failure in evidence gather at the police end at the crown prosecution end it doesn't really matter 24 percent fall in rape convictions uh, on this day compared to last year 23% reduction in domestic violence convictions what I'm afraid to say and I make no bones about saying this actually every year at the moment for for about the past decade it has basically we're slowly but surely legalizing violence against women we we're letting people get away with it to the point that when nothing happened to that man who did that to Sophia what message does that send that sends the message that he can do that again and he will and maybe it'll escalate next time. The, the government have got to look at the data in all the failures and really insert themselves into it the way they insert themselves into terrorism, the way they insert themselves into knife crime. seeing an outpouring of rage and grief in London over the murder of 33-year-old Sarah Everard and the fear that women across the country live with every day. Thousands of people packed into this public square, the same part of town where Everard was last seen. She disappeared while walking home at night and was later found dead. A Metropolitan Police officer has been charged with her murder and kidnapping. And for women in the UK and all over the world, Everard's murder is proof that the fear they live with is real. The fear of simply walking down the street or across Clapham Common, as it is here, as, as women knowing you're not safe. Well, earlier, Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, made a private trip to Everard's memorial. Here she is seen in the screen jacket. A source tells us she wanted to pay her respects to Sarah and her family and that she remembers what it felt like to walk around London at night before she was married. But not long after the crowds gathered, police broke up the vigil, citing coronavirus dangers. There were clashes, as you can see here, as police handcuffed and dragged mourners away. The police response is outraging government officials and civilians alike. For women mourning a murder victim, though, at a vigil, being pushed around by police is an ironic reminder of the misogyny and violence they say they face every day. Well, here's Nina DeSantos with that. They came to remember a young woman whose life was cruelly cut short, only to be wrenched from their vigil by officers from the very force where her suspected killer served. The death of 33-year-old Sarah Everard while walking home one night has plunged Britain into a moment of reckoning on women's rights and safety. Essentially, women have a curfew now. Yeah. As soon as it gets dark out, you either have to be with someone or you have to be home. We're fed up of having to worry all the time and not feel safe. And this has just proven our fears to be true. Sarah vanished on March the 3rd whilst walking home from one residential part of the capital to another at around 9pm. Her remains were found last week nearly 60 miles away and a serving London Metropolitan Police officer has been charged in connection with her death. 
shocked so many is both the randomness of what happened to Sarah and the relatability of the circumstances under which she disappeared. She was last seen walking along this busy street in South London after having been to visit a friend who lived nearby. It wasn't particularly late and this isn't a particularly dangerous area. The vigil for Sarah had been organised by women in the neighbourhood where she vanished, but was cancelled due to COVID regulations. Yet, thousands still came. Their aim, to reclaim women's rights to walk where they want, when they want, without fear. While maybe abduction from runaways is not as common as been said, um, being groped on a bus is, being yelled at is, being followed home is, and those are things that need to change because just because not all the stories end in tragedy doesn't mean they're not worth telling. On Twitter, women shared their stories. I can vividly remember getting harassed by a man who tried to assault me when I was 18. On my walk home, a man in a car pulled up next to me to tell me I had... When I was 13, a man followed me and my friend down an alley and flashed us for walking to the Vanessa Noel. Tracy Kidd. Nelly Mustafa. In Parliament, one lawmaker shared the names of women who were killed in the UK this year. Among them, six who perished the same week Sarah went missing. For David Challen, who campaigned to overturn his mother's sentence for killing his abusive father, there's a lot men in Britain can do to better understand and aid women's plight. It's time for misogyny to be recognised as a hate crime. You know, these are offensive acts on a sliding scale that creates harm and violence and trauma for women throughout their lives. They all have it in common and men are blind to it. The scenes of police arresting masked women holding a vigil despite Covid rules sparked anger nationwide and politicians from all sides demanded an explanation. The Met said they hadn't wanted to act. But we were placed in this position because of the overriding need to protect people's safety. Sarah Everett's family said their daughter was beautiful and bright, a shining example to us all. In the senseless tragedy of her death, many hope her memory may guide the way for other women towards a safer path home in the future and away from scenes like these. Nina Dos Santos, CNN, London. And as Nina reported there, London Metropolitan Police are defending their actions at this vigil. Take a listen. Officers on the ground were faced with a very difficult decision. Hundreds of people were tightly packed together, putting a, posing a very real risk of easily transmitting COVID-19. Police must act for people's safety. This is the only responsible thing to do. But London Mayor Sadiq Khan says the police response is, quote, unacceptable, tweeting the police have a responsibility to enforce COVID laws. But from images I've seen, it's clear the response was at times neither appropriate nor proportionate. We've just heard clips today starting with In The Loop giving an update on what happened when Austin cut their police funding by one-third. PBS NewsHour laid out the details of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. 
MTV Impact explained qualified immunity and compared the progress we're able to make with what gets derailed. The Rational National highlighted the Republican rejection of the Violence Against Women Act in favor of defending abusers' rights to purchase guns. Ring of Fire Radio explained the origins and downsides of the Violence Against Women Act. The Telegraph explained the vigils that broke out in response to the Sarah Everard murder. Tisky Sauer explained women's experiences navigating society constantly on the defense. Channel 4 News focused on the role of men in an effort to make society safe for everyone, and CNN UK reported on the unsurprising violent police response to the Sarah Everard protests. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Laura Flanders Show, which discussed abolition in another sense, addressing a different system that fails to meet the needs of society, and Into America told the history of the LA Police Department and the move to begin defunding it. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Bud from Boise. Uh, I was just listening to your, uh, I believe it was a members-only episode, about separating children. So immigration was in there. The Indian boarding schools was in there. I think separating black children from their parents during the slavery days was there. And then a really good, you brought up a really good point about how our welfare system and our child protection system also separates families. Really excellent, uh, excellent episode and really difficult problems. So very soon after listening to that, I was listening to the David Pakman show and uh, a caller called in and said, uh, is it possible that being against immigration can be anything but racist? And without getting into that whole thing, it got me to thinking about our immigration system and the first thing that popped into my head was maybe we get a lot more lax about allowing people in but we don't allow them citizenship really at all which sounds i think harsher than it is however their children by right of of being born here can be citizens and of course the parents you know if they're here working obviously they get legal residency green cards whatever but i think we're going to need people we're uh, our birth rates are dropping and uh, a lot of these a lot of these people especially from the southern countries they just want to come here and work and if they happen to have children they sure don't want to leave them back there so my thought of allowing the children to be citizens sounded very generous to me at first but then in a way there was sort of an echo of integrating the children into our society without integrating the adults into our society. So maybe I'm more racist than I thought I was. I don't know. Anyway, right now we block everybody's path to citizenship. And I thought maybe this would be one more step in the right direction. But it also uh, may be just an interesting place to start a discussion. Stay awesome. Bye-bye.
Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to Bud for the call. I wouldn't worry too much about figuring out whether you were more racist than you thought, as was clarified for me by the late Michael Brooks. Be hard on systems, but easy on people. And that goes for yourself, too. Go easy on yourself. Save your ire for the systems we confront. That said, I'm about to yell at a journalist for something that he wrote last summer, but I'm going to keep in mind that the real anger should be saved for the whole system of editorial checks and balances that let this little gem slip through. So a few weeks ago, we were playing a game about headlines and how they can be so misleading that they are both true and damn dirty lies. And I found a great one. While researching the activism for today's show, Amanda came across this article and just started cursing. So here's the headline. This California city defunded its police. Killings by officers soared. So that's the headline. And then the very first thing you read under that headline is this. It says, clarification, colon, an earlier version of this story did not adequately explain that when the city of Vallejo reduced police funding, it did not provide additional funding to social services agencies, as many current defund the police proposals advocate. The story has been revised to add that information. End quote. So they didn't change the headline, which obviously is the most important part of an article, but they added that clarification and added in a little bit, uh, you know, another paragraph to the story. So basically, this is like an article warning about the dangerous ideas that some have about conducting surgery. You know, it, it would go like this. Some are saying that health conditions can actually be improved by cutting into the body with a procedure called surgery. Well, one case study should give you pause. In this situation, a vagrant got a hold of a rusty knife and began stabbing passers-by. Contrary to what the surgeons would have you believe, these people having been cut open actually led to decreased health conditions. In fact, they got much worse. So, so, I mean, forgive me for harping on this. I missed this article. It came out in June last year. So the news is old, but my anger is fresh. So here's how the actual article reads. Unable to pay its bills after the 2008 financial crisis, Vallejo filed for bankruptcy and cut its police force nearly in half to fewer than 80 officers from a pre-recession high of more than 150. At the time, the working-class city of 122,000 north of San Francisco struggled with high rates of violent crime and simmering mistrust of its police department. It didn't seem like things could get much worse, and then they did. <sighs> okay, great. So it's not just a story about a police force being cut in general. It's also being cut during a time of heightened economic precarity in a city that was already struggling and they didn't put anything else in place. Great. Perfect. Perfect comparison. Continuing. 
far from ushering in a new era of harmony between police and the people they are sworn to protect, the budget cuts worsened tensions between the department and the community and were followed by a dramatic surge in officers' use of deadly force. Vallejo's experience offers a glimpse of how a core element of the defunding agenda, fewer officers assigned to limited duties, might play out, especially in a community with limited resources. And then this is obviously the paragraph that was added later for clarification. Those who support such an approach say that the current model of policing is irrevocably broken and that millions or billions of dollars should be moved from police budgets to social services. That did not happen in Vallejo, which departed from many current prescriptions for reform in a fundamental way. As the city went broke, there was no effort to shift money from its diminished police department to other agencies and programs, which likewise faced cuts. So yeah, brilliantly assessed. I'm glad that clarification was added, but God, like, back to surgery. This stabbing rampage offers a glimpse of how a core element of the surgery agenda, cutting people open for health benefits, might play out. We've since added this paragraph for clarification. However, those who support such an approach say that surgery should be conducted in sterile environments with special surgical tools by highly trained professionals with thousands of years of accumulated medical knowledge. That did not happen in the stabbing rampage, which departed from many recommended surgery procedures in a fundamental way. Jeez, I... I hope that writer, like, got out the cat of nine tails and cut his back into ribbons in self-flagellation after that one. But our thanks goes out to him and the headline writers over at the Washington Post for providing such a great example of journalism that can be both true and so misleading as to be a damn dirty lie. Okay, so just a quick side note that has absolutely nothing to do with today's topic other than the city involved. I grew up in California, so I know that all of the white people in California pronounce the city of Vallejo as Vallejo, and so that's how I pronounced it. But it wasn't until today, when reading this story, that I realized that the Anglicization of that word only went halfway. I mean, I guess it's good that it at least went halfway, but white people apparently realize that when saying a word of Spanish origin that J's get turned into the H sound, Vallejo, spelled with a J, but we can't quite go far enough as to turning the double L into the Vallejo that would clearly be a closer approximation to proper pronunciation. But I, you know, I have credits better than none, I suppose. Okay, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments webmastering, and so forth. And, of course, thanks to all those 
who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And everyone can support the show and earn our special secret Best of the Left art reward just by telling everyone you know about the show using our referral-matic at bestofleft.com refer. Check that out. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.